Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hi everyone, Dr. Hondorp here, and I am really excited for this episode. I know I say that every time, but this was a pivotal one for me. It started to help me really connect the dots on why I think intuitive eating and not focusing on dieting or weight loss is so key in determining how to respect our body, how to understand our physiology, and really just as I kind of do this work with the folks I work with one-on-one and inside the program, um, the, um, the body respect program where I work with people, it's kind of just fascinating for me because as you all know, probably by now, I love research. I love science. But some of the things that Victoria dives into today is they are things that I really hadn't fully considered and hadn't really tied together. And that's why I'm so grateful for her time and also for this podcast, because I actually, um, before I invited her on, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I was thinking like, well, Sean, you're the researcher, you're the scientist, like you're, you should figure out this stuff for yourself. And I'm like, well, my research focus has been in ineffective weight loss strategies. I mean, a lot of what I researched, I got a lot of value from, but Victoria has a really great gift, I think, in in explaining these concepts and how science and polyvagal theory and our connection to ourselves and our connection to other people and our threat response and hormones like oxytocin, how they all affect us and how so many of us get in this dieting cycle, whether or not we develop significant binge eating or mild binge eating or emotional eating, or whether we just feel really ineffective, we feel like we're on diets and off diets. This conversation really was pivotal for me in understanding that But beyond self-determination theory, which we talk about in this podcast all the time, a lot of times it's easy to think about these things like a sense of belonging as being a social construct. Like you have to feel like you belong and that's how you're going to, 
you know, have long-term change when psychology and like our social environment, meaning the people we spend our time with, it's intimately related to our biology, right? So our bodies at a biological level, the cells in our bodies are working in a certain way based on our social environment. And so self-determination theories tells us we need to meet three key needs to facilitate long-term habit change, right? Autonomy, competence, and relatedness, which is all true, but this conversation kind of connected some of the pathways in my brain that helped us to understand why. Because what happened for me anyway, I'm a very practical person, so by the time I found intuitive eating, Personally, I had tried every diet under the sun, and most of them were the ones like, like if I'm sure if Noom was around when I was in my cycle, I would have tried it because, and I'm not saying anything bad about Noom, but I mean, I did Weight Watchers a bunch of times. I did My Fitness Pal, Jenny Craig. I did a lot of like calorie recording, healthy nutrition plans. I did, I never tried to be too restrictive. And what's interesting is I think that so often we think, well, you know, the people that do intuitive eating, they had really restrictive eating disorders, and that's why they needed to do intuitive eating. And I truly do not think that's the case. I think intuitive eating is hard to learn for some people because there's so much mistrust. Like Victoria says so well in this interview, there's, we have just for years and sometimes decades shut down our biological responses. We haven't been listening to our bodies And this includes hunger, fullness, and also our emotions. And she really ties this well into polyvagal theory and the threat response and how that impacts our eating and our sense of self. And so, so yeah, I I brought her in because she's done the work. She's done the work to tie this all together in a really accessible way. And I'm so grateful for her expertise here. So... In this interview, what we're going to talk about and kind of explain is why on a biological scientific level, binge eating never was and never will be a willpower problem. And that's not just for people that are restricting to 800 calories a day. This is true. I mean, my binge eating started really early and I wasn't ever, I was always eating three meals a day. I never, I was actually terrified of like messing up my metabolism. So I never skipped meals and I... And I still developed binge eating pretty quickly. And Victoria explains so eloquently why that was just my brain's attempt to self-protect. My brain didn't know that I was doing this on purpose to try to like lose weight. It was, it was trying to protect me. And our brains did not evolve in our current environment with all the food available, but also all of the you know, pressures and and things available. And what's interesting too about this conversation and what we'll dive into is that how really understanding your body and its physiology can be the difference that truly makes the difference for you. And it's not just when we think about like diet culture and beauty standards and looking at social media and not seeing your body represented in social media or in, I don't know, television shows or not seeing yourself represented, that's not just going to impact you on a psychological thought level. That's actually going to potentially create a threat response in your body. Because back in the day when we were part of a tribe, 
If we didn't fit in, we would probably get kicked out of the tribe and then get eaten by a lion. So social connectedness is biologically hardwired, right? And so we are probably not aware of it, but when we're, if we're looking at social media and not seeing ourselves represented or only seeing people that have bodies that don't look like ours, that can, at a biological level, tell our brains we're not safe and we need to do something to fix it. And many times eating can be one of the ways to do that. But when we think of eating as a willpower problem, then we blame ourselves and that's actually more of a threat response, more self-criticism. And that just becomes this vicious cycle where we feel like there's something wrong with us. We feel like we might be addicted to food. Um, I felt that, I don't know if I use the term food addiction, but I had a strong biological drive to food that was intense and it is not there anymore. So our bodies can relearn these skills, but we do have to dig deep and really understand our biology. So I'm super excited about today's episode. Can you tell? I cannot stop talking about it. So, and the final thing I want to mention that I've been thinking about a lot lately is the true meaning of intuition. So as any of you who know me know, I'm a huge Brene Brown fan. I've pretty much consumed anything she's ever done. And so I listen to her podcast all the time. She and her sisters are doing a series right now about The Gifts of Imperfection, which is an amazing book. And she read as from this book, the meaning or definition of intuition. This is broadly, not necessarily related to eating. And it made me really think. So I'm going to read it to you now. So intuition is not a single way of knowing. It's our ability to hold space for uncertainty and our willingness to trust the many ways we've developed knowledge and insight, including instinct, experience, faith, and reason. So sometimes we think of intuition as this gut feeling or even with intuitive eating, right? Like just eat what you feel, eat what you whatever you want. And while there is an inherent permission in intuitive eating, you, when you give yourself that permission, it lowers the stress response and you feel like Victoria kind of says in this interview, you feel less drawn to foods that for years you felt incredibly drawn to. And it's kind of incredible. And so when you relearn that connection with your body, it frees up time and space to focus on other things. But I just thought that was really interesting because I think this idea of intuition, and maybe we'll get into this in another episode, is it's not just feeling. It's actually knowledge and insight. And so facts and things that we learn and things that we know, like for Victoria's example, her process of recovery and understanding her body included doing a lot of research that was really important to her. And that was part of her intuition of doing what's right for her. And now, of course, she's able to help so many people. So I just think it's important to think about intuition and learning to trust ourselves and knowing that even if that feels darn near impossible, it is not impossible. It can be hard work. It can be really uncomfortable to say, I have the answers within me versus some expert knows the exact thing, whether that's eating or anything. But the reality is we can all get expert guidance, but ultimately we do have to trust ourselves. And it's always a balance um, for, for all of us. I 
quick story. I'm going through that now as a, a business owner. I wish there was like someone who could just give me a roadmap of what exactly I need to do as a business owner to make the podcast successful or, you know, make the online program successful or any other thing that I'm doing. And the reality is that experts can give me roadmaps of what works for them, but ultimately I have to continue to reflect inward on what's right for me, my family, this business, how do I do it in a way that I feel comfortable with. And sometimes I wish I could just follow some step-by-step formula. And so it's the same thing goes with eating. It's hard, especially when we've been told for so long that there is one exact roadmap and we just have to find it. But that is just the diet and weight loss industry wanting to sell you stuff. So I'm kind of going on a tangent now. So let's make sure we dive into this episode. I'm sorry for taking so long in the intro, but I'm just so excited about this interview. I think you're going to love it. I can't wait to hear what you think of it. And before we dive in, just a reminder that this blog and podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be construed as any form of professional advice. All right, guys, let's dive into the interview with Victoria. All right, so today I have the pleasure of talking with Victoria Evans. Victoria began her career in the corporate world with a prominent Fortune 500 company in the beauty industry in Montreal. During this time, her challenges related to eating disorders, mental health, extreme dieting, and over-exercising became a catalyst for creating a solution to an issue millions of women deal with today. As a successful intuitive eating coach, she's disrupting the wellness industry through her fundamentally science-based approach. Victoria helps countless women heal their relationship with food by optimizing their mindset for happier and healthier lifestyles. Really, really excited to have her here today. We have lots to get into. So welcome, welcome to the Motivation Made Easy podcast, Victoria. Thanks so much for having me. I am super excited to get talk- talking with you today. <laughs> so excited. I can't even talk. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's very, I'm, I'm with you. So let's dive in and we have a lot that we could cover today. And so we're, I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Um, can you tell us first a little bit more about your personal journey with coming to intuitive eating? Yeah. So To tell that story, I kind of have to backtrack right back to my childhood, which is when, you know, I'd always been tall, broad shoulders, a little bit heavier than everyone around me. And I thought that, you know, I didn't fit in. I wasn't good enough. And I thought if I had changed my body, if I lost weight, if I was skinnier and smaller and cuter and prettier, then I would be happy. And, you know, especially as I, you know, began to get a little older, like 12, 13, I started to really struggle with depression and anxiety. And again, this idea that, you know, my body's the problem. And if I just looked a certain way, then I'd feel, you know, connected and happy and less anxious and all those kind of things that so many, especially if you've been socialized as a woman, we've been kind of told to believe. And that kind of continued on right up through until the end of university and through university, I'd put on quite a bit of weight. I really used food as a way to make me feel safe when I didn't necessarily feel safe in my environment. I was away abroad. I was playing volleyball in the States and volleyball, which had been, you know, a way for me to outlet a lot of my stress and anxiety my entire life 
all of a sudden became my main stress source and people watching me and these little spandex shorts and like, you know, all the teams there and the rallies and everything. I felt really self-conscious. And again, this idea that if I just looked a certain way, like the other girls in my team, if I was just skinny, then everything would work out and everything would be happy and wonderful. And so after that, I started working for a Fortune 500 beauty company in Montreal. And when I was there, this idea that, yeah, I need to look like everyone else there. It was very kind of a Vogue-esque kind of a culture. Like everyone was very beautiful and made up. And I was in a new city. I was by myself. I, again, this idea that my body's the problem if I just fix it. And so I started going to, you know, different sources, looking for different diets I could try, something I'd been doing my entire life. But I really began with a new intensity. I was like, this is it. Like, I'm really going to lose the weight this time and everything will be wonderful. And I went on Instagram and found an influencer with millions of followers, you know, the best abs as it were. And I bought her 12 week weight loss guaranteed program. And it really just spiraled from there. I lost a lot of weight really quickly, but in a very, very unhealthy, unhealthy way. And, you know, towards the end of it, you know, my hair was falling out and I'd lost my period. But at the same time, I was being posted all over her social media with before and after photos being like, look at Victoria, she's killing it on my program and thousands and thousands of likes and comments and everything. And so that was super, super confusing. Mm -hmm. And so fast forward through that, and I really got to this kind of rock bottom moment where I realized, you know, everything I thought in my life where, you know, getting to a certain size body and looking a certain way, that wasn't the answer my body was in fact not the problem. And so I had to go on this very difficult and intense, but so rewarding and so grateful journey to intuitive eating where I realized, you know, my body's not the problem and shrinking myself is not the solution. And rather it's through connecting to myself, you know, and learning how to regulate my own body, regulate my nervous system and understand what's actually happening in my body on a more biological level. Like why did I feel the need to lose weight beyond just kind of diet culture, but rather again, going into the science. So through that, I was able to start getting into intuitive eating, but from a very science-based kind of place. Mm-hmm. How did you first get like find intuitive eating? How did that happen after this like really intense? Not only like a lot a lot of people have like you know some maybe some weight loss success maybe and then but yours was also like projected everywhere. Mm-hmm. It was kind of funny how I came across it. The first time I came across it, someone had mentioned to me at work they're like, "Oh, have you heard about this thing called intuitive eating?" And I remember I had a standing desk at my work and I wore these ridiculously high heels. And I remember standing at my desk with my heels being like, I will look this up. And, you know, looking it up and being like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) If I'm allowed to eat whatever I want, if I have total freedom to eat anything, I'm going to eat nothing but donuts and cookies and cake and chocolate all day long. Because at this point, you know, I knew that if I was dieting, which is basically just restriction, right? All day long, I'd go on these massive binges at night. And then I was purging, you know, it was bulimic. So my brain thought, well, if I was just giving myself full permission to eat all these different foods, that was just going to lead to complete and utter chaos. So my first introduction to intuitive eating was just laughable because I thought mm-hmm. it was totally ridiculous. Um, and which but is that's also super you know, common, like so that is common. a very yeah. common thought, right? 
Mm-hmm. Which is why I share it because I know a lot of people like myself had that initial same reaction. Like, well, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why it's so ridiculous is because we've been conditioned to shut down our own body's responses or what our body's actually asking for us, mm-hmm. right? We were born knowing when we were hungry and when we were full and all these different things. And so, you know, especially if you didn't socialize as a woman, we've been told to distrust our body, to ignore the signals it's been sending us, to suppress our hunger, suppress our appetite, right? You've been learning to distrust ourselves our entire life and told to look outward for how to use, you know, how to listen to our body, told to look outward for what to eat, how much to eat, when to eat, all this kind of thing. So of course, over time, you lose that trust with our body. And if we're not understanding that something like binging, for example, is not self-sabotage, but rather self-protection, of course, we're going to feel like we are out of control and we can't trust ourselves because we're not actually understanding what's going on. What, what changed your mind about intuitive eating? Was it a process or was there something that really helped you to believe like, Hey, this actually could be really effective. So this was a little bit into my recovery journey and I'd started, you know, I had my rock bottom moment. I called eating disorder hotline and kind of spoke to them a little bit about how I was feeling and what was going on. And I started to get treatment there in Montreal and they brought up the, the notion of intuitive eating. And again, I kind of laughed at it, but I was like, I really, I really need to recover. Like I can't live this way anymore. My whole life was just falling apart. And so I did a ton of research. I started really digging into it. And I'm someone who's very logical, very rational. You know, I have to understand why I'm doing something. Don't just tell me to do something because unless I know there's specific reason why it's going to help me, there's no way I'm doing it. So, you know, the different psychologists and counselors were giving me different tools to use. And I was just like, well, why would I do this? Like, it didn't really make sense to me. So I had to really take that, you know, responsibility, that ownership of my journey and go and do all the research and do all the Googling and read the books and the medical journals and really just have this mass influx of information to go, oh, okay, I'm not actually broken. Intuitive eating is actually a real thing. And, you know, it's through understanding what that looks like. And, you know, how I coach now, it's really building that bridge between that restriction and that control and the dieting and the obsession around food to food freedom, because of course that's a massive jump. That's a massive leap. And if we don't understand the why we're doing different things and how to connect to our body in a very real way, instead of just, you know, eat like you love yourself kind of thing, that just seems so far-fetched, especially at the beginning, right? Sometimes you need those steps to put into place so that we can follow them to a place of intuitive eating. Yeah. And you sort of answer this question of like why it was so important for you to learn about the science. Were there certain aspects of things that you learned about the science that were like really pivotal? Cause there's a lot there, right? Like there's a lot to understand, but were there certain things that you're like, Oh, that is why I'm binging or that is why like, like kind of, I know you touched on it, but were there certain scientific things that you read or did that made a big difference? Yeah. So like you just said, like binge eating for, for me, I thought that was a willpower problem. I thought I just wasn't strong enough and have enough motivation, not understanding that was my primitive part of my brain freaking out because it didn't have enough energy to keep me alive. Mm-hmm. Right. When we are binging, when we are going on these, you know, we feel their Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, we're eating a whole bunch of food. We feel like we're a different person. That's our body's response to keep us here. If we didn't have that built in, we would cease to exist as a species, right? It goes right back to way a long time ago. We have that feast famine response. If I'm not getting enough food in my environment, right? So hunter gatherer kind of days, then when I eventually find that food, I need to feast on it. 
Because if I'm in a famine and then I eventually get to food and I'm not feasting on it, again, I die out. We have the genes that people pass for today who are the best bingers in response to restriction. Mm -hmm. And if you don't give yourself enough food, if you are depriving yourself, and that is what dieting is, right? That is what a restriction is, not telling yourself you can't eat food, right? That is the same thing as if you were in a famine and your body's going to react the exact same way. Yeah. And even, you know, I know you know this, but like even a lot of people struggle with this idea of like, well, but you were maybe doing something really extreme or this weight loss effort was intense. Right. And, and our brain doesn't necessarily know the difference. And actually what you said kind of strikes me too. this idea of like evolutionarily, the people that are like developed binge eating are like evolved, their genes are evolved. Well, I'm like, okay. Cause I developed some people diet for years before they developed significant binge eating. Mm-hmm. Personally, I developed it like right away. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, so that's good. Right. <laughs> cool, cool, <laughs> not, cool. <laughs> not right away, but like pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're like, okay, good job brain. But that's not, certainly not mm-hmm. how I thought of it, but, but going like the moderate restriction does the same thing. It's interesting. So many people are like, well, yeah, I absolutely, I never went super low in my calories. Like I was like doing healthy what I thought was healthy. It clearly wasn't, but I never went below 1200. If I exercise, I'd eat more. Um, but it does, our brains don't know the difference. It seems like exactly, you know, what we consider kind of modern human history as it were in terms of having, you know, relatively stable availability to food. That is very recent. That is very recent. Our brain has not evolved to understand that it is the 21st century and I can go to the corner store and get a chocolate bar which means when I'm telling, like not giving myself breakfast because I binged the night before, my brain's not thinking, oh, we're doing this to try to compensate for eating too much last night. It's going, we're in a famine. Our energy levels are getting way too low, which means that if a lion were to come attack me right now, I don't have the energy to fight it off. That's literally how your brain is operating. It doesn't understand that the threats of today and the you know attempts to diet is anything other than a famine. And you know, even for your brain, thinks that something is wrong. Something thinks that something is sick, basically. So it's going to send you these urges to binge and eat these large quantities of food because it thinks it's being your friend. So it's kind of like we're beating ourselves up and hating on ourselves and like, God, I can't believe I've done this again. What is wrong with me? And it's, I just like picture your, your little brain just being like, here's some food to help you. Like <laughs> we're saving your life. And we're just like, God, oh, you know, You're so, the worst. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, literally. And so it's rather, you know, understanding what is my brain trying to do here? And that's why science was such a big component of this, me removing all that shame and really becoming empowered through understanding the education going, okay, I'm not broken. It's just my brain trying to get my energy levels back up for survival. And it's that restriction that is causing, you know, that binge eating behavior. And what I even always say to, you know, clients is that restriction creates rebellion and allowance creates space for choice. When you give yourself that permission to eat all foods, right? It's like, if I was to tell you, what's your favorite food, for example? Uh, I love pepperoni pizza. Pepperoni pizza. Okay. So if starting tomorrow, you can't have any pepperoni pizza, what would you do tonight? I would have a lot. Exactly. Right. Versus if I said to you starting right now, you're always going to have a piece of pepperoni pizza in arm's length. Mm -hmm. You probably feel pretty chill about it. Maybe day one and two, it's pretty exciting. After that, lose its novelty. Yet Mm -hmm. we do this exact same thing with food. We eat the cookies and we tell myself, okay, starting tomorrow, I'm not going to get any more. I'm not going to have any more pizza, right? I'm going to finish this box of pizza. not going to order any more. I'm going to get back on track. All your brain hears is, oh my God, we're going into a famine, Mm -hmm. freak out, eat as much as I can right now, because now as of tomorrow, the food is being taken away again. I don't have any more availability to it. Mm 
mm-hmm. versus that feeling of calm and reassurance and food abundance, right? There is no famine if you always have that food available to you. And that's kind of how intuitive eating works, right? It's this idea that if I can always have whatever I want, it doesn't feel like I have to go and get that thing because it's just always going to be there. So it loses its excitement. You know, there's definitely a, what they kind of call a honeymoon period in the beginning, which is like, if I'm never allowed myself to have pepperoni pizza without making it off limits for the next month or a few weeks or whatever, or I only ever binge on it, then yeah, the first few days or weeks or months, you know, depending on how heavy you've been into that restriction, it might feel like you're eating a lot of that food. But I promise you when you stay that course, and that's also why with my coaching, I give specific tools for this, right? But that we feel like we can become empowered around these type of foods because they lose their novelty when you're no longer trying to restrict them anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's really rewarding work that I'm sure you you feel the mm-hmm. same way. And, and particularly for me, I've been moving away from... I can do things the way I want to do things now in my, my practice, which is relatively new. And I don't have the like external constraints of sort of weight loss clinics that undermine progress. And so it's like really rewarding and and cool to see that, like you said, we don't know the exact timeline, but sometimes we do see some really fast reductions and binge eating, like way faster than people would ever think. And it's like just the freedom of choice and permission and it's having an impact on your brain. And yeah, so I love that. And and you um, have done research into polyvagal theory. This is how I found you on Jen Radke's podcast. So let's talk about polyvagal theory. It's actually really complex, right? So let's <laughs> let's break it down. And what do people need to know about this and how this is impacting their body and their, their eating and relationship with food? Yeah. So this was probably one of the most exciting things I came across when I was doing this massive amount of research because it just explains so much to me. So Let's kind of break it down here. The basically polyvagal theory by Dr. Stephen Porges, it talks about the three different parts of our nervous system and the responses to stressful situations. So once we kind of understand, you know, what these three parts are, we can start to see why and now how we react to these stressful situations and then learn what to actually do about it. So a lot of people are fairly familiar, might be familiar with the two defense mechanisms that are triggered by two parts of our nervous system. So we have the sympathetic, which is that fight or flight mode. So something has scared me. There is a threat. I'm either running away from that thing or I'm trying to fight it, right? So maybe like a lion, fighting a lion or fleeing from that lion. Hopefully we're fleeing from the lion, fleeing fleeing from the lion, unless we have like a spear or something, Um, right? (laughs) And then we also have the parasympathetic uh, nervous system and that we can look at as the shutdown response. Sometimes it's called the freeze or the faint response. So kind of think about maybe like a possum playing dead or a deer that sees your car coming, decides it's just going to chill on the road until you hit it. (laughs) That would be the same thing as the freeze response. And so basically what polyvagal theory explains and what Dr. uh, Dr. Stephen Porges came up with is this idea that there's actually a third part of our parasympathetic nervous system, which is called our social engagement system. So basically, unlike the other two, this is not defensive. So it's not fight, it's not flee, it's not freeze. In fact, being in the social engagement system requires a feeling of safety. So it's the social engagement system is basically like a playful mixture of activation as well as calming. It helps to kind of navigate relationships and its conversations. And so with that kind of understanding, why the heck does this matter? What does it have to do with my work? You know, how does it have to do with intuitive eating? Well, there's a couple different things there. So the first is that our eating habits are often a maladaptive coping mechanism and our bodies attempt to find a feeling of safety if we're constantly in a defensive state. If I'm like constantly in a fight, flight or freeze mode, 
food can be a way that my body has kind of conditioned itself as a way to kind of self-soothe, a way to make it feel safe and feel better. And so again, we might think that we're self-sabotaging, but often it's a way to self-protect because our body's using food to try to create a feeling of safety. From a very young age, you know, we cry and our mother soothes us, we get breast milk or bottom milk, whatever. Food is associated with safety and comfort. And that's the same thing, you know, moving forward to today. And so if we are seeing our bodies unsafe, especially as well, if we don't feel like we fit in with societal beauty standards, that can also lead to feeling, you know, fight or flight or shutdown response. We want to try to fix our own body so that we can feel safe within our own body. If I look on social media and in the world around me and I don't see myself represented, my body type, that can feel very unsafe for me. So then we become, you know, obsessed this idea of how we have to look, change our eating habits, but understanding at the core of all of this, it's because we don't actually feel safe within our own body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how, yeah, the eating absolutely is adaptive, but also it's, yeah. So the social engagement piece, I was just reading about that. That was sort of fascinating and I dipped into it a little bit before, but it's, it's like you said, it's complex. And so the social engagement piece, like part of that, like, do you think, cause we talk about like societal beauty standards and diet culture, you know, well, we do on this podcast and, and I know you do in your work too, but it's, it's almost like there's this, there's a biological response to, like you said, when you're not seeing yourself represented in social media, which is changing a little bit, but mostly we're really bad at representing and respecting diverse bodies. And that is almost, it sounds like at a biological level, a threat. So it's not even something that you're consciously aware of. Sometimes you, people are pretty consciously aware of it, right? Like I experienced Mm -hmm teasing my whole life. And I know that I've been told my body's not okay my whole life. And other times it's more subtle, right? Like of just breathing in these messages or kind of absorbing them all the time and not even realizing that's causing a threat response and a stress response for you. Is that, does that feel accurate or sound accurate? Oh yeah, it's totally bang on. And like, I, yeah, growing up, I remember in the fourth grade, a girl told me that I had a big butt. And so I literally tied a jacket around my waist for like the next three years to be like sweltering hot outside and I'd just be dying of heat. But I was like, nope, like, you know, someone said this about me. I'm so conscientious of my social environment of trying to fit in that I will hide the thing that makes me feel unsafe. Right. And so this kind of diverts a little bit from polyvagal theory, but yeah, going back to, you know, how our brain works, the different neurotransmitters. So for example, oxytocin, that's the neurotransmitter that's largely associated with bonding, also childbirth, but really connection, connection and wanting to feel a part of the group. We are biologically driven to want to stay in a group, feel connected to a group, because if we didn't have this, we wouldn't survive, right? So thousands of years ago, if I was being different and being weird and not assimilating to the tribe, I would be kicked out of that tribe. I would not survive as a person, as a species, right? And so we are, again, are the genes pass forward to the people who best fit in, best assimilated. Because if you didn't have that, we would have ceased to exist, right? So our brain, when it doesn't see itself fitting in, when it sees that it's not fitting in by this driver of oxytocin, this bonding and feeling of connection, it feels like it's unsafe. It sees it as a threat to its survival. It thinks it's going to be kicked out of the tribe. We're going to die in the middle of nowhere, in the jungle, in the savannah, all of that. And so when we're looking at social media and we don't see ourselves or we're looking at magazines or whatever, we're in an environment where someone says your butt is too big or they're bullying you for your body. This is sending off all these alarm bells in our brain telling ourselves like, yeah, it's not safe for us to be us right now, which then that puts us into that defensive state, right? We're fighting, we're fleeing, we're shutting down. 
And when we're in any of those states, we're in those fear states, we're not even able to access rational thought, right? We've kind of cut ourselves off from accessing our prefrontal cortex, frontal cortex there, which is future thinking, rational thinking, impulse control, emotional regulation. Like there's so many best parts of ourselves really is this part of our brain. And so if we're constantly in this defensive fear state, we're not even thinking properly. We're not able to show up as our best selves. And so even through the work I do, I'm so passionate about it. And I really have such a feminist kind of approach to it because if we're constantly in this feeling of unsafe youth in our own body, fighting, fleeing, shutting down, we're not able to be our best selves. We can't sit at the table and smash the glass ceiling and do whatever it is that we want in life because we're spending so much time trying to shrink ourselves, right? Which our body sees as unsafe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I love that. And I think that really, as you're talking, it's making me think that, so in this podcast, we talk a lot about self-determination theory, which is like a theory of motivation and the three key psychological needs that facilitate long-term habit change in like all areas and relatedness or sense of belonging is one of these three key needs. And, um, I I'm sure the theory talks about this in a biological level to some extent, but like often I think of that as like on a social level, right. Social acceptance and all of that as sort of like these social norms, but it's, I mean, biology and psychology are obviously intimately linked. And yet we, I don't always think of it in terms of like the oxytocin response and the fact that we need to feel safe and connected so that we can think clearly. So we can, you know, one of the other needs is competence. So we can sort of feel effective. We need to be able to like think clearly to set goals and accomplish goals, or like you said, pursue things that matter to us. So I think it's, really cool. And I appreciate like all of this. It's like piecing together why we know, like we know pretty well what these key needs are that we need to meet, but it it gives even more context, I think, to why. Yeah, absolutely. It's so, like I said, so empowering. Like, so I know if I look in the mirror and I tell myself, oh, I need to lose weight. Like this needs to go, this needs to go, blah, blah, blah. My brain is actually saying is I want to feel loved. I want to feel connected. I want to feel safe. None of those things are going to come from changing my body size. So rather we need to work to you can regulate our nervous system, find a sense of true connection because all of that kind of superficial dieting, changing my body, that's not going to lead to anything but unhappiness, right? It's through that constant pursuing of this, you know, kind of external validation when we're trying to fill an internal need. And so yeah. when you're having those moments come up of wanting to shrink yourself, everything, you know, take a second, even do some breathing, right? So having a longer exhale than inhale triggers your vagus nerve, puts you into a parasympathetic state. This tells your body there's no danger. Now I'm able to access my frontal cortex and be like, oh, noticing that I was having some thoughts around my body. I know that when I have thoughts around my body, it's times when there's a feeling of unsafety, stressful moments in my life, you know, that's when our body dissatisfaction is the highest. And so being able to kind of check in and almost create that little bit of a buffer, that little bit of a space to evaluate those thoughts and look into them and realize like what I think I need to do now, which is change my body or change my eating. That's not actually the issue there, right? Mm -hmm. What we think is a body problem is actually a life problem. And furthermore, you know, it's a regulation problem in our body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, you can validate that desire without mm-hmm. like, cause sometimes you'll hear like the sort of meditations or guided, like I am love and all these things. And like, people have a really hard time. They're like, I don't feel like that. I'm never going to f- love my body or just like, feel like I am love or something. But yet I think you can validate like there is, there's a desire for connection there. That is why you have these thoughts. Like they're there for a purpose. They're actually there for a really adaptive purpose. And that's what I think you tie together so nicely. And then 
tying it back to you can validate that and then you can take a space and say like it's not effective right it's not working Mm -hmm. and there's other ways to calm myself down and there's other ways to be able to think about this so yeah I love that um what was the hardest part of sort of not learning intuitive eating but like relearning it right because we're all at intuitive eaters at some point in our lives but relearn what was the most challenging part for you Mm, there was a lot of trust issues that I had with my body, obviously, right? If we're being conditioned that we have to eat a very specific way and, you know, we're using my fitness pal and we're not hitting that number or we're binging or whatever, like we feel like we are failing, right? There's this definite, you know, a lot of people that I work with, it's they're perfectionists, but they don't consider themselves perfectionists because they think they have to be perfect. But it's that black and white mindset, right? It's that all or nothing, either I've eaten perfectly today or I went over my calorie count or I had too many cookies and now I'm a, a failure and screw it. Now I'll just all of it. And then tomorrow I'll get back on track, right? And so that leads to so much distrust. So the biggest thing for me is intuitive eating, which intuitive eating is all about trust was learning how to listen to my body's cues and honor that and trust that my body knew what it was actually asking for. And so what I would say with clients, you know, is trust is built in the small moments over time, not in the big, huge moments. And so what I like to do as a small tool, even and people can do this, take out your phone, go to the notes app on your phone, write the document titled trust and wins. And basically we want to document all the little teeny tiny wins that you have in your day to day. And then over time, that's going to compound and you're going to realize you start to trust yourself because mm-hmm. our brain is biased to remember only the negative right? We want to remember that the red berries are going to kill us, not the yellow berries are delicious. So we are biased to only remember the negative, which means the moments that we don't trust ourselves. Mm-hmm. So you want to consciously prime our brain, really tell that reticular activating system, the RAS, which is part of the brain that decides what's important and relevant information. Hey, this is important. We want to learn to trust ourselves. So we're going to write this stuff down. This becomes our new focus, which means then we're going to see more of it in our environment because we've told ourselves to look for it, right? It's like me telling you to look for yellow cars. You're going to see more, not because yeah. there is because you told yourself to look for it. And so documenting like little tiny wins down doesn't have to be big things. It could be literally like, you know, uh, it was, I normally eat lunch at 12, but I was actually feeling really hungry. So instead of waiting until exactly 12, which is this weird rule that we like to have, even though meal times were created during the industrial revolution for people to have meal breaks, not actually <laughs> anything to do with their body. Um, but you know, maybe I do eat that lunch at like 1145 just because I was hungry, right? Noting that down, remember that. And then in those moments where you're struggling to trust yourself, you have this big reserve and you remind yourself of how amazing and awesome and incredible your body actually is, but we tend to forget because we're biased to the negative. Uh, yep. I love that. I think that's a great idea and something that like, so sometimes I'll do with clients, like a gratitude practice, which it becomes that sort of thing. Like you start to look for it. Like that's the utility of it. Right. It's a yeah, t- exactly. but absolutely. We need to be doing that for our bodies too. So I love that. And I may use it myself for yeah, folks that I work I- with and myself who, who couldn't benefit from that. Right. <laughs> or just like yeah. looking at areas where you're like, Cause we, yeah, even like, as I transition to online business, I definitely focus on the things I'm not doing well. <laughs> um, so, and so, yeah, just in general, I think it'd be a really useful exercise for people. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, where, where would you say, and you kind of touched on this, but um, that you see your clients struggle with most with intuitive eating. Mm. 
I would say kind of go back to what I was saying before is they often have a very perfectionist mindset. So they try to transfer over the control and the rigidity of dieting and disordered eating into intuitive eating. So there is definitely a learning curve of there's a lot of getting curious and being compassionate. Mm -hmm. And those two words for me work not in my vocabulary before. Like I was not someone who had any compassion for myself. Remember a therapist said, you know, Victoria, you need to be nicer to yourself. And I remember telling myself like, oh, for F's sakes, Victoria, you need to be effing nicer to yourself. Like I was just (laughs) like, she's like, that's the opposite of what we're trying to do. Like, okay, try again. (laughs) Let's try it from the top. Um, And so, but knowing, right, that, when we tell ourselves I'm not good enough and I am broken and I need to do better and I'm a failure and I'm disgusting, blah, blah, blah. What's happening is we're putting ourselves into a feeling of shame. Shame in our brain actually activates the same part as if we're in physical pain. What happens in our pain? Our brain wants to avoid pain as a survival response, which means now we're again creating a feeling unsafety in our body, which means we're again reaching towards food to self-soothe. So ironically, by trying to shame ourselves to eat better or move our body, we're driving ourselves towards a self-soothing behavior, which is the opposite of what we want. So what I would say with clients know is positive self-talk creates positive action. Negative self-talk creates negative action. So that's one of the big things that we really need to hone in on is how are you speaking to yourself? How are you speaking about food? How are you speaking about your body? Because that will create that reality for yourself if you're not intentional and careful about how you're using it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And being able to, and I'm sure you do this too, like speak, like acknowledge the feeling of shame, but not fall into the the pattern of self-talk or, I mean, for me, at least like the pattern still comes up. It's just like Mm -hmm. way faster than it used to be. Not always. If it's like a really painful thing, I might beat myself up for a little bit, but yeah. And and being able to say like, yep, that's there. And also moving forward with a new and more helpful response and being able to like not hold shame in because that's the main thing. That's like not the experience of having the shame. It's the experience of holding it in that causes that intense stress response. For sure. Like shame is, again, one of those emotions that is tied to people pleasing, wanting to fit in, right? Wanting to feel connected, good enough, all of that. So even scrolling on social media can create an intense feeling of shame. So I always tell my clients, like do a curation of your social media. I call it doing like a Mary Kondo, right? Going through your accounts. Does this account bring me joy or does it bring me shame, right? If you're have a whole feed of women who have perfect abs and eat perfectly, like you're kind of constantly be comparing yourself to them. Yeah. doesn't mean you can't ever follow them again, but especially as you're learning intuitive eating and going on this journey, maybe you do mute them for a little while or unfollow a couple of people as you're learning to feel more safe in your body, lower that shame level, and then adding in more accounts, especially a woman who look like you, your size or larger, right? So we want to feel ourselves represented on our, our virtual feed. So for example, I have cellulite on my legs and that was something I always struggled with. So of course my feed now has lots of women who have more cellulite than I do. When I see them, I think to myself, oh, okay. I don't have to feel ashamed. I don't have to feel embarrassed because look at all them. They have cellulite as well. Right? So It's Mm -hmm. a way you can change your virtual environment to reduce the shame, the shame proneness, because shame doesn't ultimately move you in a powerful, positive way forward, right? Mm -hmm. It often keeps you kind of stuck, very much turning inward, kind of a, a bit of a spiral, and it doesn't serve you. So noticing when you're, you know, scrolling on social media or when you're telling yourself and beating yourself up these things, I literally tell myself, I'm like, is this thought actually useful? 
I don't shame myself or get mad at myself for having that thought, but I'm like, I know that this thought and, you know, leaning into that and believing it to be true is going to lead to more of needing a self-soothing behavior from it mm-hmm. versus what is the thought that actually might serve me about one that is more positive and more productive. Um, and then choosing, and again, over time becomes easier, the more that we're firing on those pathways, it becomes less, um, less difficult, especially if you've been shaming yourself your whole life. Like that's the default neural pathway set in your brain. Like you're going to be firing on that so many times. Like that's always what you're going to be wanting to do. So don't beat yourself up. If you beat yourself up, um, yourself up, right. Knowing it takes time, um, but catching it and being aware, like, is this thought serving me? Yes. No. Is this thought useful? Yes. No. That can also help to kind of create a little bit of space and move you forward. Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to be harder at the earlier stages, like learning any new skill. And like you said, because there's those neural pathways have been primed, they've been Mm -hmm. run many, many times. And they, when they fire together, they wire together, meaning that, yeah, so that, that, that course has run its course many times. And so it's not always going to feel so cumbersome Mm -hmm. with time. It'll feel a little bit, I mean, still there's things that you'll struggle with, of course, because we're all human, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Over time with intuitive eating, like I was saying before, it's like the compassion, getting curious, the beginning, that's going to feel so difficult. There's going to be so much resistance to it. It feels likely like a lot of your eating is on autopilot. So when we're learning intuitive eating, it is a learning curve. It is takes time and effort, but again, we're building these new pathways and we're slowly starting to fire on them using those trust and wins to help kind of accelerate that and really lean into that more positive action. And then over time that becomes the new default setting that becomes the new pathway that we're you know, easily firing on, but in the beginning, it's going to feel difficult and it's going to feel tough. It doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. It means that you're doing it right. So stick Mm -hmm. with it. And as well, like really follow different accounts and, you know, read different books and really consume a lot of information around whether it be intuitive eating or body confidence or haze or body positivity or whatever, Mm -hmm. because again, that's creating that environment for yourself where you're not only learning, but feeling safe to be yourself. Um, if you were to pick, I didn't tell you, I was going to answer, ask you this question, but if you were going to pick three books that you like recommend as the, your top books in this area, what would your three be? Mm, okay. So I love anti-diet by Christy Harrison. I have not um, read that one yet, but yes, I've heard it. It's excellent. very, it's not like a book where you're like, this is a nice story. It's like very <laughs> heavily science-based. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really interesting. If you're someone who likes to have the facts information, it goes deep into kind of like, you know, where did BMI start and mm-hmm. where, like, what is the kind of information behind weight stigma and doctors and, you know, all that kind of thing. So really interesting book would highly recommend it. Um, another good book would be, I mean, the principles book of intuitive eating is a great book. If you want to kind of get a foundation for me, I found, you know, especially that's why I kind of created my coaching program. I needed more science. I needed more tools. Um, so it's a great kind of starter for you. If you're kind of interested to learn about it. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? I also read, um, Oh, Mel Wells, where she does some good books. These are more, these are a bit more of stories, but it kind of talks about, uh, oh goodness me. I'm at the top of my head. I'm trying to think of what it is. I put you on the spot. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, you're good. You're good. Um, the goddess revolution. So it's about food and body freedom. And she talks about her story and, you know, her trying to be perfect to connect with others and how that related to relationship with food and, um, not so much about polyvagal theory, but if you're reading like anti-diet or even, you know, polyvagal theory by Dr. Stephen Borges, those are pretty heavy books um, mm-hmm. or even things like the body keeps a score another great mm-hmm. book. Those are a bit 
heavier into the science kind of psychology realm. So if you yeah. want to offset that with a more pleasurable read where you can feel like you relate to the story, then the goddess revolution books are really great. Okay. Good to know. Awesome. And before we were chatting, it, I wanted to ask you, cause you said you have family members in the medical field. So I'm curious a little bit, like what some of those conversations have looked like. If you've talked about the intuitive eating approach and Hayes health at every size for the listeners. Um, what, what are some of the like things that you guys have discussed and, and maybe points of contention or agreement that you've come to? Mm, we've had interesting conversations. So yeah, one of them is definitely around, you know, people in larger bodies having more health issues, right? That's something that comes up in my family that they really think is a huge prevalent issue. And so when I bring to them, you know, the science, the fact that, well, a lot of people, for example, don't even go to healthcare providers because they're worried of being shamed for their body. If you take someone's blood pressure and the person taking your blood pressure blood pressure is a doctor who has massive amounts of fat phobia and is constantly shaming you for not having lost weight, trying to put you on a diet, then of course your blood pressure, blood pressure, can't talk, your heart rate is going to be higher just by default, mm-hmm. right? The amount of, you know, often you know, judgment or shame we feel for being a larger body, not because of it's bad, but because of people have told us that, right? That can cause health issues in itself. And rather now they're finding in different studies that People who are, you know, if you're looking at the BMI, which I would never recommend to look at BMI, but Mm -hmm. people who are considered in, you know, the overweight category are actually healthier, you know, in terms of how their stats look health-wise. So bringing to them a lot of that science, not just kind of this, you know, me telling a story about how it's better and just kind of bringing in some kind of, I don't know, not airy fairy, but kind of just like this exciting (laughs) kind of movement really, but like bringing in the facts, bringing in that information. And sometimes they listen, sometimes they are, you know, they've been doing it a certain way, I think a certain way for so long, it's not always understood and that's okay. But more recently, I don't remember what medical journal it was, but my dad received a medical journal and it was basically talking about how it is, you know, okay to be in a larger size body and, you know, weight stigma that doctors are giving um, or kind of showing around patients that gives them less appropriate care and you know how they need to kind of work through that and take more of a health at every size movement and so he's like oh yeah I saw actually an article and you know this big medical journal about that and I was like yeah I know like so Mm -hmm. I feel like they're kind of catching up to where I am but Mm -hmm. you know they in medical schools unfortunately not this information isn't taught like this is very new this is very you know not necessarily, it's not in textbooks. It's not at conferences, hopefully, you know, yet, hopefully that changes soon. Right. So as of now, it just kind of looks like fad kind of, you know, I don't know, like kind of weird information that doesn't necessarily resonate. So being able to bring in the science helps. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I was curious about those conversations because I definitely have a strong like belief that we need to be having more productive conversations. And one of the ways that we can do that with is with evidence, but yeah, one, I think one of the challenges is it's like with, with science and research, what we want to do is like randomly assign so we can determine cause. And we can't really with most of the, like humans are complex and we can't like randomly assign you to have weight stigma your whole life and you to not. And then we watch you for like however many years, like we can't do that. So there's Mm -hmm. all like, we're not accounting for weight stigma and you can try to control for it, but it is challenging to prove one way or the other. And I feel like a lot of people are trying to like prove their way or prove their way. And it's like, well, actually it's just like nuanced and complex. (laughs) And so, and, and 
and I, I very much believe in health at every size and intuitive eating. It's like, I think of them as, as frameworks that will help give people more choice and freedom of how they want to move, approach their bodies. And I hope that healthcare gradually over time is able to kind of see that and hear that and, and take that in with um, a variety of different, lots of conversations will have to occur. So, yeah, absolutely. I think more and more there there is more conversations happening, right? I've talked to lots of different, you know, whether it be doctors or psychologists or whoever on podcasts and they are getting into this movement and people are asking their healthcare providers, are you haze informed? Yes or no. And choosing them accordingly. So I think there is definitely a shift and hopefully it'll keep happening faster and faster, especially I think with social media, there's a lot more access to just that awareness of what is kind of happening. And it's, it's also here to stay. This is not like a fad trendy thing that's going to come and go like, this is happening. This is real. You know, I don't think people, Mm -hmm. once they're kind of woken up to diet culture and understand this work could ever go back. And they're teaching that to their kids and talking about to their friends and their family. Mm -hmm. So it's really a, a global movement that's happening that I don't think we could, you know, ever go back from. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. And, um, I also, sometimes I look at like, I, cause I read, uh, Lindo Bacon's health at every size a number of years ago. And it's like, well, wait, it's been, it hasn't been that long since it's been out, but it feels like it's been long, but the reality is it does take a long time, time for research to go to practice. So I see the movement too. I think I'm just impatient. Yeah. <laughs> so. Takes a while, unfortunately, but yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, well, so let's move on to our motivation questions that we always ask everyone, all of our guests. So what, in terms of the intrinsic motivation question, so what's one thing you have truly intrinsic motivation for? So something you do for the inherent satisfaction from the behavior, you enjoy it, find it challenging and or satisfying just in its own right. Mm. It's a tough one. Um, I would say, honestly, I've really gotten into meditation and I really love it. I used to hate it. Uh-huh. Like it used to be a bit of a joke because my mom, my sister would be like, oh, do you want to just like lie down after yoga? And I was just like, why would I ever want to lie down and be with my own thoughts? Like this sounds absolutely terrible. Get me away from that at all costs. Um, <laughs> but now it's something I do daily and, you know, it's something I thought I should do and I have to do, but then all of a sudden became something I wanted to do. And mm-hmm. it just makes me feel really good and really kind of at peace in my body. So that awesome. one is yeah, I just have an intrinsic motivation to feel that sense of calm and that feeling of peace in my own body. How often do you meditate now on average? I I meditate every day, at least Mm -hmm. 10 minutes, sometimes 15. Um, but yeah, it's just become ingrained. And again, for people who are wanting to start meditation, not taking that all or nothing approach to it. Don't go at it. Like now I'm going to meditate every day for 20 minutes. You know, I work with clients on doing micro habits. So like that might look like doing five minutes once a week for Mm -hmm. a month, Mm -hmm. build up that confidence, build up that trust, put in your trust and wins that you're doing that. And then after that comes twice a week or maybe comes eight minutes. Right. So slowly build up over time. So it's better to do that than do 20 minutes or two days, then take, you know, six months off and then try again. (laughs) Right. Yes, exactly. I, I love that. And I think, um, well, so that's actually some, our next question is an example of a behavior that was always a should that you struggled to do, but you figured out a way to do it more consistently. It sounds like that, beca- like basically meditation went from that should or more external motivation to intrinsic. And now you really mm-hmm. just have this intrinsic desire because you see the, uh, 
basically see the immediate benefits of it, which obviously doesn't mm-hmm. always happen right away with meditation. Is there any others that you've seen sort of like be a should and now are, you know, maybe you love it now. This could be the same kind of thing, or it could be something that like you've figured out way to do consistently, even if you don't always love it. Mm-hmm. I would say intuitive movement. Um, Mm -hmm. so I don't call it exercise anymore because I think that we can get into such a box of what that looks like, um, calling something intuitive movement that might mean literally me like doing ecstatic dance, right. Or doing, going Mm -hmm. for a walk or I CrossFit, somebody that is CrossFit. Um, but for me, you know, movement, I thought I had to do it. I thought I should do it. It was very much a punishment to compensate. It was hating my body and trying to shame it to shrink it versus now it's doing it because I genuinely love feeling how I feel when I move in my body. I love feeling how strong I feel when I lift weights and how empowered and just how like raw, like awesome I feel when I do it or dancing, you know, like getting into that flow kind of state, right? Like I really love doing it just for the sake of doing it. And, you know, when it comes to things like intuitive movement, asking yourself the question, if I knew this wasn't going to change how my body looked, would I still want to do it? And, you know, depending on that answer, it might be a great way for you to change a little bit your relationship to movement, to do something that genuinely feels good for you instead of something you feel like you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And with the meditation, not to go back too much, but was there something that you think helped you to move that from a should to something you really love now? Mm -hmm. So when it was the should, it was mostly because I was just hearing it everywhere that I mm-hmm. should do it. Right. All the research Good for you. Yeah. I'm coming with my research and I was like, damn, it's not going away. Like it's just <laughs> everywhere and everything I see, you know? And so it was really that should for the way that I was doing it initially was I was trying to do it like, you know, the 20 minute, like just the intensive. And it just felt like pulling teeth because mm-hmm. I was not accustomed to it. It didn't feel safe for me in my body to all of a sudden just try to sit there. Like I was still very much in these kind of defensive states. And so it was slowly starting to become more something that I enjoy doing and something I wanted to do when mm-hmm. I took the pressure off of trying to show up like perfectly in it, but mm-hmm. rather just praising myself for showing up in those little moments. So it was you know, the five minutes once a week, like that's literally how I started out and feeling good about myself just for doing that. And then that kind of just stacked over time. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, perfect. So any, um, final takeaways or messages that you want to share before we tell people how they can learn more about you and connect with you? So I'd probably say that your body is never trying to be mean to you. It's never trying to force, like trying to sabotage you in any way. Mm-hmm. It's rather just its way of trying to communicate with you. So mm-hmm. get curious, ask yourself questions. If you found that you ate 30 cookies, you know, in one sitting, instead of beating yourself up, ask yourself, like, did I eat enough today? Was I trying to avoid some kind of emotional pain? Was I feeling really lonely and unsafe in my body, right? Like layering on shame to what was likely a feeling of shame to begin with is not going to get you anywhere. So getting compassionate, getting curious and, you know, knowing again, like your body's always sending you messages. It's just whether or not you're kind of open and willing to, you know, figure out what that actually is. Love that. So where Victoria, can people learn more about the work that you're doing and connect with you? And any yeah resources you want to share as well? 
Yeah. So I'm most on Instagram. I love it there. I have so much fun. So I love, you have lots of fun dance videos, which is awesome. (laughs) I dance a lot. Um, yeah, I just, it's a great time. And, uh, (laughs) I do a lot of little mini trainings and lots of information there. So definitely come add me on Instagram. That is at Victoria Evans official. Send me a DM. Let me know you've listened to this episode. If you have any questions, ask me for sure. Uh, if you wanted to work with me, you can head to my website or it's also my link in bio, but www.victoriaevansofficial.com forward slash programs. And I do have a six week program called Craving Food Freedom. So it's six week, six weeks. It's self-paced. It's all the science, all the best everything that I took for my one-on-one coaching program, but was now sold out. So I put it into a course. Um, so if you want to sign up for that and take it online, you can start today. And the coupon code is podcast for 10% off. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this conversation, for really breaking it down for us in so many ways, so many great takeaways really. Um, and I learned a lot. And so thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me. All right, guys, we're back. How good was that? I, there were so many quotes and things that I want to highlight. We're going to do some general recaps now and just have some general reflections. And I'm going to share with you a couple of different ways that you could talk to yourself. But Victoria gave us so many things to be thinking about and also tangible things that you can be doing to build trust with your body. So first and foremost, your binge eating and emotional eating is not a willpower problem. It's literally your body's brain and biology and its evolutionary response to keep you alive and self-protect. So knowing this can help reduce the shame that so many of us live with and feel. And that's what I did for years. I didn't share any of this with anyone. I thought it was just me and I thought I just had a self-control problem. So understanding, second takeaway is that understanding our body's physiology can be incredibly empowering. And so how much you understand of the physiology might be dependent on you and what is most important to you to understand and reduce that shame. But for Victoria, she did this really deep dive into the research and that was really, really helpful for her in understanding why she's doing what she's doing and why it's so pivotal to do so. And I wanna remind you as you're reflecting on whatever you've done in the past, restriction does not just mean eating a thousand calories a day or less or whatever level of restriction you think is restriction, our brains really don't know the difference between that extreme restriction and quote unquote healthier, moderate restriction. I I will say that sometimes I do think there's a level of like eating less that our bodies and don't fully react to, but I do think that's very, that varies person to person. And in my experience, I think that's one of the reasons why your first attempt at weight loss may work and future ones don't. It's not just that your body sort of adapts and changes its metabolism. I think at least for me, each future attempt at weight loss caused a whole lot of stress because I was afraid of failing. And I think we need to understand that, that stress response and how that's operating as we approach ourselves, as we think about ourselves, when we're trying anything new, whether it's you know doing a health promoting behavior, but maybe doing it in a different way that isn't so stress inducing, because if we don't consider this, we're going to keep feeling ineffective and spinning our wheels. Cause I know that's what I did for a very, very long time. So 
The other thing to keep in mind is that there's many ways that you can activate your body's fight or flight stress response and cause issues for yourself. So this can include restriction of food. And that's like the first place that I look at with people is that, but even the thought of like, okay, you're going to start a new diet tomorrow can cause that stress threat response. Your brain thinks that a famine is coming or also having thoughts about negative body image when you look in the mirror. And finally, like we talked about, just the act of seeing a lot of bodies where you're not represented can feel like unsafe because even when we're not consciously aware of it, this causes us to think there's something wrong with us. And one suggestion that Victoria had was curating your social media, meaning making sure you're seeing diverse bodies and bodies that look more like you um, is one option that we have. And so remember that trust is built over time. I loved Victoria's suggestion about the trust and wins by pulling open a note in your phone, recording all the trust and wins for your day regarding like areas where you're eating and listening to your body. And that is working because what happens is our brain has that confirmation negative bias where it's only going to look at the negative and it's going to forget all the good that happens. So this is... Yeah, this is really, really key when you're in it to build that trust. And I loved that strategy. So definitely get that started today. I probably should do that. I talked at the beginning of my intro about the business, like as I like things that are going well, I need to probably document because otherwise I just forget. And then in the moment, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm failing and everything is bad. So um, the final thing that I will say is just kind of reinforcing Victoria's reminder to get curious and compassionate with yourself. So if you do, she gave the example, if you ate 30 cookies, get curious. I know it's really, really, really hard to do that, but just asking yourself questions like, did I eat enough today? What was going on? What was I feeling right before that? And really just taking a look at that. And the more compassionate you are, the more you can lower that stress response and think more clearly, think more rationally, bring in that, you know, frontal cortex or the the higher level thinking that allows you to think through things versus just shaming yourself and that cycle. So instead of looking at yourself and saying things like I need to lose weight to feel good about myself, you could remind yourself, as Victoria said, that your desire for weight loss comes from this primitive desire that we all have to feel connected, loved, feel like we belong, and that changing your body is actually super unlikely to meet any of those needs long-term and there's other more effective ways to do that. And that could be fueling your body with enough food. That could be connecting with friends. That could be being open with a therapist or counselor. There's so many things that that could be. And instead of resolving to do better tomorrow, you could ask yourself, how can I take care of my body right now? Right? So instead of this like tempting, doing a search and signing up for a new weight loss program, Noticing that thought, noticing the stress response that comes with that and saying, how can I take care of myself right now? So with that, um, I will sign off for you today. Thank you so much for listening. Again, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. And finally, I will remind you too that if nothing slows the momentum, Amazon's going to have 80% of the book market by 2025. And I've found a super cool way that you can support local bookstores and my blog and podcast simply by buying books like you already do. And I will say that the prices are very, very similar. The only difference is you might 
get your book not in one day, but like in three to four days. So if you can wait for your book for a couple days, um, this is a great way to really support local bookstores, feel really good about the purchases that you're making. And if you love this podcast, support me as well. So there's a link in the show notes to my bookshop link, and you can check out all of my favorite books on health and wellness, courage and vulnerability, and even my favorite fiction books and kids books, but you can also really buy anything there. So check it out in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time and your support. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.